It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here with the latest security news, and including uh, that new that new uh, uh, hacking ring that uh, Kaspersky discovered. What do they call it? The Equation Group. Details on that and a lot more. Plus, Steve's going to take a look at the new web protocol for speeding up page loads. It's from Google, and it's called HTTP2. Details ahead on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 495, recorded Tuesday, February 17th, 2015. HTTP 2. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. For the hands-on business owner, Carbonite makes data backup hands-free. Carbonite's automatic cloud backup provides you with round-the-clock protection at work and at home. Visit Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW for two free bonus months. And by IT Pro TV. A good IT pro is always learning, and IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your IT skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for a free seven day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv/slash security now and use the code SN30. And by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy too, and here he is, the man in charge of Security Now. Uh, Mr. Stephen Gibson from GRC.com. Yo, Leo. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. Well, we're 495 episodes in, wow. in our 10th year, and we're closing in on episode number 500. Amazing. So, yeah, I figured with all of this recent discussion of uh, HTTP um, and the forthcoming spec for HTTP2 and Speedy and how HTTPS over Speedy is faster, outperforms HTTP. It was time to take a look at, formally, at what is HTTP2. We got um, no changes in the HTTP protocol since version 1.1 in 1999. So 15 years ago, and we've been sort of tolerating it and and coming up with workarounds for its various problems ever since. So this week we're going to do, we're going to, first of all, an amazing week of security stuff, largely because Kaspersky's having their uh, yeah. security analyst conference down in Cancun, Mexico right now, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so they've been dropping some bombs uh, on the industry of the things that they've been tracking and aware of for some time. So we're going to talk about actually a little bit of a of a compromise that Google has made in their Project Zero ideology. Uh, the uh, the fact that uh, Kaspersky has has sort of unveils the a very long standing advanced persistent threat in the global banking. Uh, world 
Uh, also, that so some details on something that we actually found out about, believe it or not, in December on the December 29th of 2013, but we didn't really it didn't really catch our attention, and that's this hard drive firmware rewriting. Unbelievable! This is the equation stuff, right? Oh, yes, the, the, man. The, the equation the equation group is the name that Casper C has given to them, and they're like the elite group who apparently feed the Stuxnet and the uh, the Regen group or Reagan group uh, their technology. Uh, also, a fabulous tip about credit freezing to protect yourself from identity theft. Uh, and then we're going to plow into um, HTTP2 and explain exactly what it is that the industry is pretty much already moved to kind of quietly, but uh, it's being finalized here. A lot of interesting stuff. It's yep, great, <laughs> as you said, a great week. And I think yeah. we should go to Cancun next year. Yeah, when I found out that was going on, it's like, and there was Kaminsky, who I last saw when I was pre- presenting. Uh, we both were actually on November seventh in Las Vegas for the for the DigiCert conference. And I thought, oh, Dan, he okay, went down there. Huh? You know, yeah. He's talking about who knows what. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Well, maybe next year. I th- I just assumed Kaspersky would have its conference in, in, in Moscow in the middle of winter, and I thought, well, I'm not going <laughs> yeah. to that, but to Cancun. I, well, I, think, I, I think we understand why everybody, <laughs> well, I have a high attendance for yeah, that conference. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we go too far, one of the things I think uh, everybody who listens to this show has learned is that one of the best ways to ameliorate a security issue is to have a good backup. We've talked about how CryptoLocker uh, you know, could just devastate you unless you have a good backup and uh, that's why we like to talk about carbonite online backup a good backup this is the best if your business relies on the data on your computers and whose business doesn't carbonite's the right solution to you even if you're a hands-on business owner carbonate makes data backup hands-free hassle-free too all your digital assets are backed up to the cloud automatically securely you don't have to think about it last time we talked i think it was uh 50,000 small businesses use carbonite now 75,000 small businesses use carbonite more than a million and a half customers total round the clock protection of business files of databases of documents you know for business backup is so important something like crypto locker can put you out of business i mean your customer records your suppliers your accounts receivable lose those and you've lost it all. Carbonite protects you round the clock for a very affordable price. And of course, Carbonite at home can protect your files too, like your digital photos and your music. I want you to go to Carbonite.com. Take a look at all the plans, the pricing, the information. They've updated their site with lots of great information. Uh, And then try it for free. If you use our offer code security now for your free trial, and you don't need a credit card, but if you use uh, just you do want to use security now as the offer code one word you'll get two months free when you decide to buy. Uh, take a look at everything Carbonite can do for you, and I think you'll agree this is an absolutely critical part of your security plan for your business. Carbonite online backup you got to back it up, get it, to get it back to do it right with Carbonite. Carbonite.com. Please use the offer code security now. Now I should mention we'll be talking about Carbonac. 
Um, that's something else. That's, <laughs> that's the cybercrime group that's been stealing maybe as much Ooh. as a billion dollars Ooh. from the global banking market. But Ooh. that's not Carbonite. Carbonac is something different. Yeah. Um, I wanted to point out uh, this picture of the week uh, that uh, courtesy of our, of our uh, often contributor to the show, Simon Zarafa, is just such a perfect picture. It's at the it's the first page of the show notes for the week showing uh, a kid on a unicycle driving down a little commercial strip of shops, um, having just passed a sign that has huge block letters, no, and then underneath it, bicycle riding, rollerblading, roller skating, skateboarding, and scooter riding. Clearly, they were trying to say no to everything. Anyway, the point is, the caption of this is, why blacklisting fails which is this is this is just perfect because this kid is on a unicycle not a bicycle not a rollerblade not roller skating not skateboarding not scooter riding he has obeyed the sign yet he's riding his unicycle where he's not where they don't want him to be because they blacklisted specific things rather than saying only pedestrians, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Only people using their feet. No, they went the other direction. That so would be whitelisting, wouldn't it, if they said only would... walking people? Exactly. Only people walking. Ah, oh, just perfect picture. So I love that and want to commend that to anybody who's interested. It's at the first page of the show notes. So Google apparently um, reacting to the 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 backlash to their rigid or i should say previously rigid 90 day we will disclose vulnerabilities whether they've been patched or not policy of project zero has softened their stance in a rather eh, sort of snarky uh blog posting they start out by substantiating the success of this policy. They use Adobe as an example, uh, talking about how Adobe has managed with all of their multi-platform, multi-reach stuff, uh, the Adobe Flash team has managed to to successfully fix all 37 Project Zero vulnerabilities within the 90-day deadline. Um, and But on the other hand, we, we see... Flash constantly doing uh, out-of-cycle patches to fix these things. And the problem that we've discussed several times is that Microsoft, because they, they really, they really in, unless it's something dire, have to stick with a 30-day policy with their standard second Tuesday of the month a schedule because, you know, their patches need to be vetted by corporate IT. You know, you could argue that the corporate IT key can just block Flash, but they can't block Windows. They are using Windows, so they have no choice. So, so anyway, so uh, Google says, you know, sort of saying everybody else manages to do this. And then they say, stepping back more generally, talking about the success of their Project Zero, that the 154 Project Zero bugs fixed so far um, 
85% were fixed within 90 days. And then if they further restrict that to essentially half of those, the 73 issues filed and fixed after October 1st of 2014. So that's that, that's sort of saying once everyone, you know, once we came up to speed, once everybody fully understood what Project Zero was, that is, you know, the more recent problems, um, that number jumps to 95% of those 73 issues fixed more recently within the 90 days. Um, and then they finally say, furthermore, recent well-discussed deadline misses, and they, they are in, in those phrases they have three links which correspond to the, to the, the Windows problem and the two OS X problems, they said were typically fixed very quickly after 90 days. So what they've done as a consequence, I mean, so, so basically they're saying, okay, here's where we stand. We think we're doing something good for the industry. Uh, people have improved their responses given Project Zero. That is the most recent responses have been faster than the earlier ones. The 90-day the, the deadline misses have, have dropped from 85% originally down um, to, to only 5% misses. So 15% misses down to 5% misses. And those that missed were quickly fixed. So, okay, fine, Google. Thank you very much. So now they're saying, um, we've studied the above data. And I love the way they said it. They, said that they, they wrote, and taken on board some great debate. Sort of like a small dinghy takes water on board. <laughs> Tell I think. engineers wrote this. <laughs> taken on board. They're taken on board some debate. Some great debate. <laughs> and external feedback from uh, uh, around some of the corner cases. These are corner cases, right? Uh, like, did you mean greater than one or greater than or equal to one? Oh, well, we really meant to include the equality case. Okay, good. Uh, for disclosure deadlines, writes Google, we've improved the policy in the following ways. Weekends and holidays. If a deadline is due to expire <laughs> on a weekend oh, or... man. I know. Or a U.S. public holiday, the deadline will be moved to the next normal working day. Okay, so, you know, it's like when the mail is delivered, except you do get mail on Saturdays still, uh, but, you know, not on federal holidays. So if the deadline falls, then they'll bump it. They'll bump it. They'll give you, you know, one or two days extra. Then grace period. We And this is the big one. We now have a 14-day grace period. If a 90-day deadline will expire, but a vendor lets us know before the deadline that a patch is scheduled for release on a specific day. So the vendor's got to come back to Google and say, please, Google, we, we're ready, but we just need some more soup. I mean, we just need two more weeks. Um, so if they will allow, if they'll tell Google the specific day within 14 days following the deadline, when the patch will be released, the public disclosure will be delayed 
until the availability of the patch. Public disclosure, writes Google, of an unpatched issue now only occurs if a deadline will be significantly missed by more than two weeks. And then finally, the last change is Google wasn't dropping their Project Zero stuff into the standard CVE pot, which is maintained by the industry. So the third change is the assignment of CVE um, numbering. Google writes, CVEs are an industry standard for uniquely identifying vulnerabilities. To avoid confusion, it's important that the first public mention of a vulnerability should include a CVE. For vulnerabilities that go past deadline, thus the public disclosure, we'll ensure that a CVE has been pre-assigned. So those are the changes. Basically, it means another two weeks added to the existing 90 days. I kind of understand the need to set a deadline because as they point out, uh, the the three times that we had to re- reveal it publicly, it got patched right away. And right. so if you don't set a deadline and you don't reveal it publicly, then companies just drag and drag and drag. But I, there's two things. This first strikes me as some real arrogance on the part of Google. Like, well, we're going to do it right, and obviously these other companies just don't care. <laughs> and Somehow they have a problem. They have a problem. Uh, I, I think you got to give credit to Microsoft and Apple and uh, whoever else that they do care about security, and they're, they're going to they're going to try to patch these flaws. Give them some credit. They're like they're like and- a school teacher who says, "Well, you know, you, you didn't hand in your report, so we're going to give you an F." Yeah, this is this these we're grown ups here. It also feels a little bit. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say something politically incorrect, but it feels like I these, just said. Snar- I, 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 it's snarky. I, I use the term snarky. Yeah, it's engineers it sort of- who are being a little too literal minded. You know. Yeah. Can you could just say, look, we're going to give you about ninety days. We're going to contact you, and we're going to beat the drum louder and louder if you don't fix this or something. Right. You don't have to. I don't know. Yeah, that's my reading too. We're I, not in on school. The other, on the at the same time. Thank you, Google. Thank you well, for yeah, they got it fixed. being a, a, a little accommodating. I, it's clearly, I mean, as I've said, from my perspective, the the big problem is the t- the timing of the ninety day counter relative to Microsoft's fixed thirty day schedule, because it could be that 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 just that, what would it be? It would be. Just before a 90-day, I'm sorry, just before one of Microsoft's second Tuesdays, a problem is found and Microsoft is notified. Now, there's three fixed cycles, but they're going to miss that because the 90 days will expire just before another one of Microsoft's scheduled releases. So... It does make sense to add a little bit of, of, you know, forgiveness in there because Microsoft's challenges, I think, are are well understood. It was it was driving people crazy. Remember, once upon a time, Microsoft would just drop these all the time, and and IT was scrambling around trying. And there were some problems where they would, you know, patch things that would break IT software, 
and then have to roll them back and so forth. So so this has all been sort of negotiated over time. This is the way it makes sense to work. And other companies have followed suit. You know, everybody else now tries to do things on some schedule or, or in batches to minimize the, the, the problem that this creates. So... Again, thank you, Google. I you you know and for being flexible, for being flexible, or really yes. more like for not no. being too inflexible. Well, you know me. I mean, I've I've arranged my security certificate specifically to fudge Google. I'm thumbing my nose at them, keeping SHA one signed search because there's nothing wrong with that, and my certs expire on December 31st at the end of the oh, year, see. so that I you know so that I get the the happy Chrome indicator. Uh, it's that and, same kind of arrogance to me. It really feels right. like a, it is a, a, a real arrogance about the the subtext of this is that oh really Apple and Microsoft don't care as much as we do about your security, right? Um, and that's I think patently false. Yeah, Microsoft had already announced a drop dead in 2017 at 2017 of SHA one in in a context of there being nothing that anyone knows that's wrong with it. And Google just decided to push that forward because they've got the most popular browser on the planet now. And they can arbitrarily enforce this. I don't know. Did you see that wonderful video of some guy trying to figure out what Chrome's trying to tell him with a red slash through the HTTP? <laughs> no. Oh, it's been floating around for the last couple of weeks. And then it's like he's a typical user right. scratching his user. head. Yeah. And he's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, now – and he like mm. figures out how to work around it. And he like he 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 it was and it was so painful because this was is this was some marketing spam in email, and if he clicked on it, he got this warning from Chrome because it was HTTPS. But if he if he like removed the HTTPS, which he doesn't understand, and just put www, you know, marketing accelerators are us dot com and some other crap. It like, worked. Then it worked. It's, a, it's magic. Without any security, now I don't have a notice. And, it, and it, but, I mean, so this was just it was just like, oh, so painful. But oh. this is, you know, it'd be interesting to see what how, how Google flags this stuff in Chrome and, and what what problems it causes because the problem is Google's going to be trying to say something that users will notice saying that websites are not secure and the websites are going to be saying yes we are there's nothing wrong with our certificates so yeah exactly as you say Leo hubris it's hubris yeah but that's all right because you know what what goes round comes around boys <laughs> so um the carbonac cybercrime group uh, which is what uh, Kaspersky has named them. There was a lot of news about this in the last week. So here's the what, what we know about this. They've been operating silently since 2013. It feels Russian because the they because the, it's sort of a social. It's a very sophisticated group doing social engineering phishing. To get to get a foothold into a bank's network by getting someone to click on a link in email, that gets them in. Then they spend between two and four months patiently 
infiltrating the banking network. They get onto the network. They get to an executive's computer who has access to the to the video camera feeds, which they then start studying in order to learn how the bank operates, in order to impersonate the normal processes and operations of the bank so that when they start acting, those actions will fit right in with the normal flow of what the banking is doing. So, so we're talking sophistication. Um, they, have, um, they have silently attacked at least 100 banks, e-payment systems, and other financial institutions across 30 countries, which Kaspersky has identified. And while this began... Back in 2013, it is still going on today. Um, they limit their attacks to a hundred. I'm sorry, to ten million dollars per bank. Um, once they finally engage on a specific bank, um, and so they they demonstrate enormous patience in in essentially working to remain covert until they're ready to act. Um, they have done things in two main ways. One is that they will they will get control of the bank's ATMs and cause the ATMs to admit to emit cash and then have a mule knowing what the cash and the ATM schedule is come by and pick up the cash as it's coming out of the ATM and one of the, one of Kaspersky's unnamed banking clients lost seven point three million dollars through ATM cash withdrawal you, using a coordinated system of mules to go to specific ATMs at specific times and pick up the cash that was just magically being spit out by the ATM. Then the other thing that they do is once they've infiltrated a bank's cash uh, cash management and, and account management network, they will change, they will edit account balances. For example, take a balance of, of $1,000 and add a zero to it. So now the balance says $10,000. But before anyone notices, and Kaspersky noticed that the banks typically only perform a verification sweep every, I think I saw 10 days was the number. So very quickly after adding a zero, for example, to a $1,000 balance turning it into 10000 they then transfer 9000 out of the bank to one of the, another set of accounts that they have set up, returning the original balance to 1000 so the user's balance now looks correct, yet $9,000 is gone. And they've identified J.P. Morgan Chase as one of the recipients of funds from this group. And also in China, the uh, Agricultural Bank of China as another recipient. So um, uh, this has been revealed. There was a press release um, just uh, yesterday at the start of Kaspersky's Security Analysts Conference, which is just, just going on now, as, as we mentioned, down in Cancun. And they said, 
the cyber criminals began by gaining entry into an employee's computer through spear phishing, infecting the victim with the uh, uh, Carbonac malware. They were then able to jump into the internal network and track down administrators' computers for video surveillance. This allowed them to see and record everything that happened on the screens of staff who serviced the cash transfer systems. In this way, the cyber criminals, so, so they were essentially spying on the spies, you know, the, the, the internal spies of the bank. So the cyber criminals got to know every last detail of the bank clerk's work and were able to mimic staff activity activity in order to transfer money and cash out. So, uh, and what's really interesting too is that banks have never acknowledged this previously. Um, they're all keeping mum about it. And one of the things that um, that I guess Obama was talking about last Friday when he was uh, in Silicon Valley talking about. Um, the cyber crime bill that, that he wants to to get made is that there would be recording reporting requirements that would not have allowed banks to keep this quiet uh, as they have been. But this has been silently going on for um, probably uh, maybe two years or more. Goodness knows. More. I mean, yeah, and it's been fact, going on forever. <clears throat> this particular did, hack, did, though. Yeah. Kaspersky did a note, uh, did acknowledge that their own their own verification. They've been able to verify three hundred million dollars, but expects triple that. And and now we're seeing numbers like a billion, which was you know about triple three hundred million. So a uh, lot of money. Wow. And also interestingly enough, the banks are absorbing this. I mean, this is not something that that. They're blaming their account holders on because it's not their account holders' fault. It's their own internal sec uh, network security, which is being compromised. Wow. So the biggie is, uh, is this uh, hard disk drive firmware overwriting. Um, Kaspersky has named this group, which is apparently... Um, a group within the NSA. They call them the Equation Group because they are um, they they are they have a great uh, affection apparently for um, using cryptography and um, and all of the various cipher technology uh, in order to obscure and manage the malware that that they're using. Um, they um, the Kaspersky Group has put together. A, a riveting, um, I think it's 44 pages, um, a, an FAQ in the form of a PDF. I created a bit.ly link because I wanted to turn people on to this. It is really interesting. So it's bit.ly slash bad hyphen hdd. This is, and I called it that because we, we were, you know, people were, all concerned re recently about the bad USB, which is what that was called. Well, this is essentially the equivalent of bad HDD, that is bad hard drives. Um, so um, what we know is that there is, th this has been uh, specifically done in targeted attacks. There is malware which is deliberately over 
writing the firmware in hard drives. Um, Kaspersky has found two different versions, which they called version three point something or other and four point something or other. The four point something or other is able to is, it understands not only hard disk drives, but also SSDs because there were there were names like uh, uh, OCX and OWZ and uh, you know the 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 various um, SSD manufacturers more than a dozen different makes and models of drives. It turns out that hard drives have this probably all have the same problem that some um, thumb drives have. And that is they've got very, we know that they've got very sophisticated controllers on them. It was a bit of a wake up call that USB thumb drives would have sophisticated controllers. Um, But we know that hard drives do. There is a well-documented standard in in the so-called ATAPI interface. The uh, the ATAPI API is what, for example, I, with Spinrite, use uh, a a great deal. There is a download microcode command that allows external microcode to be provided to the drive. The problem is there is no upload microcode. That is, the API itself is write-only. The hard drive manufacturers do that on purpose because they don't want anybody reading out the microcode. I mean, this is proprietary. They've got fancy uh, error correction technology. You know, essentially, each hard drive manufacturer considers their the firmware on their drives to be crown jewels. You know, it's it's their their intellectual property, you know, the exact management of defects, the exact management of of the of of the technology on the drive is theirs. They don't want anybody reading it out, getting access to it. Um, some hard drives have the firmware stored off chip, that is in a separate little serial flash, which does make it um, downloadable. And some hard drives also use um, the ARM architecture, which means that they have a known instruction set. And and uh, you know, and if the if the external firmware is not stored on the same chip, it makes it easy to access it and reverse engineer it. Now, Kaspersky believes that this equation group is part of the NSA. Because they have seen that this equation group um, firmware or, or malware, which is laid out in this 44-page PDF, apparently was employing zero-day flaws before Stuxnet and Reagan were both employing them. It's not clear whether the Stuxnet group and Reagan group got them from the the equation group, but this looks like a group within the NSA. And the other thing, which really sort of puts the 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 the, the, the frosting on this, is we read about this in and we're 
were chuckling about it. Um, in that large dump, you'll remember, Leo, that Der Spiegel made back um, late in 2013 as part of the original multiple rounds of Edward Snowden dumps. This is, and F. Secure um, reminds us of that, this is the irate monk NSA slide. Um, the NSA slide that that disclosed the, this irate monk project uh, had it tagged as TS slash SI slash REL. And I'm sure that TS is top secret. I don't know what the SI or the REL are. But, they, but that slide said, irate monk provides software application persistence on desktop and laptop computers by implanting the hard drive firmware to gain execution through master boot record substitution. The technique supports systems without RAID hardware that boot from a variety of Western Digital, Seagate, Mac Store, and Samsung hard drives. The supported file systems are FAT, NTFS, EXT3, and UFS. Through remote access or interdiction, United Drake, which is another one of the NSA programs in these slides, or Straight Blaze, are used in conjunction with Slicker Viker to upload the hard drive firmware onto the target machine to implant Irate Monk and its payload, the implant installer. Once implanted, Irate Monk's frequency of execution, that is dropping the payload, is configurable and will occur when the target machine powers on. So this sort of closes the loop on this. We, we saw that slide, we talked about it, but it was a little bit maybe sort of like overwhelming. I mean, there were just so, there was so much of, of this NSA disclosure back then that this was just one of among many. Remember we're talking about passive eavesdropping and things you could beam microwaves out that would bounce things back and just, you know, th this was among all that technology. Here, though, we've got Kaspersky who has found samples in the wild. They've been able to pull this stuff out of drive firmware. As I said, sometimes the flash ROM is not in the, the CPU chip itself, which, which would have made it much more difficult to access. But it's a little 8-pin um, surface mount chip that, that you, they're able to pull. So they were able to reverse engineer this and see the signatures of the, all of the various drives that this thing is aware of and that it knows how to, um, uh, essentially, how to operate. Now, someone um, at Kaspersky said that without the source code, this would be impossible. I would argue that's not the case. It, it would be true if you, if you could not read out the firmware, because if, the, if, if you're dealing with flash that's on the same chip as the processor, then, and there's only a, they only have write access to the firmware, you would absolutely have to know everything about the hardware architecture at the, like, like only the manufacturer could in order to, uh, in order to knowledgeably 
perform a write-only overwrite of the of that processor's firmware and have anything survive. If, however, the the serial EEPROM is outside the chip, then you could certainly obtain what it has. And if you knew that this, if this was a standard CPU architecture, for example, they seem to be using ARM throughout the industry, then you just, you'd, you'd, you'd disassemble it and start reverse engineering it. So it certainly is possible. However, the other way that it may have been that that the government or government agencies had access to source not through reverse engineering is they may have been doing large drive purchases and said to these various drive manufacturers, look, we're happy to sign a non-disclosure agreement. We and but we're you know we're buying from you essentially computers with software in them when we are buying hard drives from you. We need under NDA you to provide the source for the firmware. And in order to make a large sale to the government, we know that manufacturers like Western Digital and Seagate and Samsung and so forth, they'll turn over their source under a promise that it will never be disclosed. So it may very well be that an agency would have said, okay, NSA, we need you to vet this source code of these WD drives we're buying. And the NSA would have been more than happy to do that and probably would have retained copies. So it's, it's, it's foreseeable. We, we, know, we can understand how um, the you know, uh, law enforcement agencies with the U.S. government could have obtained the source. And this is very powerful. Essentially, it gives them three things. It gives them persistence, invisibility, and local caching. Um, uh, for persistence, they get extreme hardware lock persistence, um, which survives everything. Disk reformatting, OS reinstallation. If you suspect something little funky is going on in your computer because, you know, you're not sure, what do you do? You reformat the hard drive, you reinstall the OS. This thing is able to live through that. It gets into the firmware of the drive. You can't get rid of it. Um, uh, invisibility, of course. Once the drive is infected with, with a malicious payload, it, the drive itself, the firmware, you can't scan for it. It doesn't appear. Only its behavior, if you happen to catch it beha- misbehaving in this fashion, then you'd have a chance. The problem there is that the m- misbehavior is going to happen as the first thing during the system's boot up, it's going to it's going to replace the master boot record, and maybe not all every time. So you could watch it looking just fine and say, "Okay, well, looks good," but it only takes doing it once in order for it to to swap a master boot record with something else in order to to preload its own malware, which then is there before the OS. And as we know. Essentially functions like a rootkit, but this one you can't get rid of because it's now it's built into the hard drive, and that 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 would be a pre-boot rootkit that is then able to subvert the operation of the operating system because the operating system has to rely on the first things that load in order to check that everything else that loads subsequently is all right, and then finally local caching. What this could do is it could set aside 
some chunk of hard drive space. So it's not constrained to just the write-only firmware. It can take back a, a, some some space from the hard drive, which the which since it's now the modified firmware, it no longer allows access to that region. If it decreased the apparent physical size of the drive, that could be a tip-off that this drive has been infected because it would be reporting a smaller sector count than exists. On the other hand, drives do report in some cases a reduced size if their ha- if their spares pool of, of of bad sectors that are being swapped out for defects if the spares pool becomes exhausted the drives have the ability to reduce their reported size essentially taking back unused sectors so it's not the case that all drives of a same make and model always even report the same physical size so you can't rely on the drive saying that it's a little bit smaller as, as a means of of detecting that, so that's a problem. But that what that does is it gives the drive huge amounts of space. That is, it gives the malware huge amounts of space where it could it it could sequester sort of pre-exfiltrated information waiting, for example, for a system that doesn't always have network connectivity or doesn't have a USB plugged into it. It could store the stuff there so that, again, no scan could find it. And then under a certain set of circumstances, it is able then to dump that um, out in, 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 you know, when it has access to some sort of communications facility. So, Wow, these are the details. It looks like of of the irate monk project that uh, that the Snowden slides talked about, but uh, we never actually had samples found in the wild. Um, and now we know that this exists, and it has been used uh, uh, globally, essentially around the country. Oh, I mean, I mean around the world. I did want to say also that again, our friend of the show, Simon Zarafa. Uh, retweeted a link that I remember him tweeting some time ago. Um, uh, wait a minute. And I'm thinking that, oh, no, I, I was going to say, I thought I created a bit.ly link for it, but I didn't. I did tweet it just now. Uh, so anyone who's interested can check my my Twitter feed. There is a an interesting project at spritesmods.com, S-P-R-I-T-E-S, MODS.com, where somebody reverse engineered a hard drive. So it's all of this stuff. If you want to see, if you're interested, a real world look at reverse engineering a hard drive where essentially there is a there's a standard interface called JTAG, which is a a, a hard drive. I mean, sorry, an embedded processor debugging interface that allows the uh, an attachment to to essentially read and write firmware set breakpoints start and stop embedded processors it turns out that hard drives often have jtag interfaces which are enabled and if you know what you're doing at the hardware level you can connect to a hard drive and play with it at at, at a level below the officially sanctioned um a tappy uh, API and this spritesmods.com site um, has a, a really interesting multi-page report uh, about that being done. Okay, lastly, and this is 
I, I probably should have done this first, but these other stories were just too interesting and er, er, the industry has been buzzing about them. Um, I created a bit.ly link for this and it's important. bit.ly slash freeze credit, all lowercase. So bit.ly slash F-R-E-E-Z-E-C-R-E-D-I-T. This takes you to a page where the guy explains that a service that is available in t- to anyone for all three major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, um, allows consumers who are not the victims of identity theft to lock their credit reports. It's not free, but it's not too expensive. The cost varies depending upon where you are from $3 to $10. In California, it was $10. And because I was curious to do this, although I I wasn't worried about this recent Anthem breach, um, I locked my credit reports. I, it was ten dollars. You each may of have them. to pay to thaw it as well. This is important. Cor- th- yes, that is correct. It is not an annual fee. It is a one-time lock. But you do also, and, and it's annoying that you, you know. First of all, it's annoying that because this costs anything because you know they're making money from being a, a you know a credit aggregator. We're not making any money from the fact that they have these reports. And of course, the danger is that somebody could, and in fact. From the Anthem breach, all the information is required to apply for credit in somebody else's name. And so the idea is that somebody would impersonate you, apply for credit in your name, then the the, the credit granting institution would pull your credit report to see if your credit is good, and if so, grant this person credit in your name, they would then run up a big balance, whatever they were able to, take the money and run, and then you're stuck holding the bill potentially because they've been able to impersonate you. By freezing your credit reports, you are preventing that credit granting agency from obtaining your credit report. It's locked. And so so, so that's a double-edged sword, of course. It means, first of all, you prevent credit, new credit from being, from being acquired or granted in your name. At the same time, you prevent, <laughs> you prevent that, and maybe it's what you want. So, for example, in my case, I haven't applied for credit in decades. So I was more than happy to lock my three, you know, lock my credit report across all three agencies and if at some point in the future I need to to get credit or have someone look at my credit, then I can pay ten dollars for one or more, you know, ten dollars each for for one or more of these companies to either temporarily you're able to per per query allow them to allow a query to be made or to remove the lock, and when you apply the lock, you. Um, you are given a long pin that they generate, which you must keep because that now becomes your out-of-band means of, of thawing this freeze on your credit. Anyway, I wanted, you know, I understand that there are people for, for whom 
freezing is not practical because they're you know you know they're busy in their lives they're they're you know getting more credit cards or buying homes or cars or whatever um all of which this would be a be a problem for but if you're at a point where you um you, you don't mind blocking the world from seeing your credit report um and I just did that. Uh, I think this is a, a great option for people who are concerned about identity theft. So, so bit.ly slash freeze credit will take you to a page that explains this and contains links, which is what I followed to all three of the major bureaus. So, you know, yeah, I'm glad to know that service is available. I wasn't aware of it before. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably something new. You used to be able to do... Uh uh, this kind of thing, lock your credit report, uh, but they didn't make any money on it. And they so pretty much uh, discouraged it and changed the laws. And these companies, these three companies have huge legislative clout because they make yep. a lot of money. And I agree, this should be free, but they don't do it for free because they're replacing the revenue that they get from giving your information to companies with revenue from you. From, <laughs> so. Exactly. From from you saying yes and no. Right. Yep. But I, it's a yeah, good link. Save I, it because it does explain how to do it for each of the three credit unions, and each is different. Credit reporting, correct. not credit unions. Credit reporting. Yeah, instances. and in fact, one of them. Which one? Um, I think it's TransUnion. I saw it here a second you have to ago. call them. Oh no, that's not it. No, I was able to do it online. Oh, it was, but it was TransUnion that made me create an account, which right. was so annoying. Right. Uh, the other two don't. You're able to. You you have to prove your identity by knowing. But you know, unfortunately, you're proving your identity knowing everything that Anthem just released about you um well but so, remember you know, the, uh, transunion X, equifax they know it anyway you're not giving them information they don't know that's how they correct, can ask but, you that question but yeah but but my point was that uh anyone who got the data from anthem also oh, could, could do the for same example, thing yeah, yeah 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 could do the yeah. could do the same thing yeah. um so and then you receive this long pin and you need to hold on to that. But it was it was, I didn't have to talk to anybody. I did it online. Uh, they did take ten dollars each of them from my credit card that I provided them. And now my three my credit report is locked for all three of them. And I'm I'm glad. So and I I know our listeners. I'll bet this appeals to a bunch of them. So I wanted everyone to know because I, I didn't know about that before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've just finished the second book in the Expanse series. Uh, Caliban's War, and if anything, it was even better than the first one. So I'm I'm at the point now where I can at least recommend the first two. Mark Thompson, who's read them all, tells me that number three is at least as good as the first two. I haven't started yet in on number three, but uh, it it really is fun. So um, uh, I just wanted to com commend it to everybody. Also, there is now a trailer for the Expanse series. Coming to Sci-Fi uh, on the Sci-Fi.com S-Y-F-Y.com site called The Expanse, uh, and it looks like it may be pretty good. Uh, it's it's I'll, I'll tell I'll tease people just a little bit, and this is not a spoiler. I I hate spoilers, so I would never do one. But the and, and you learn this right off the bat, so this is not um, spoiling anything, and that is that a Another, an alien intelligence intended to uh, essentially cultivate the earth with its own organism. And so some billions of years ago launched a biological package at the third planet from the sun. 
except that just by chance it got captured by one of the outer planets and became an ice moon. And it sat there for billions of years while life evolved on the Earth, and then we colonized the solar system. And it got discovered. So I won't say anything more about what happens, but it is a lot of fun. Um, And then the other thing that this book spends time on, which is, I think, just intellectually interesting, is that as the solar system is colonized, we we colonize Mars and then the so-called belt um, further out. And and belters is a common topic in sci-fi, you know, who are like mining for minerals and ice and, and so forth in order to supply the, the required uh, raw materials for a, a solar system-wide uh, civilization. It's as is sort of going to happen the the needs of the various groups of earthers and martians and belters differ and that creates political divides and they sort of drift apart over time so anyway it, it's just good science fiction and i i do want to add it to my list of recommendations um it, i i like it and we're going to get uh, it's going to be you know a, a tv series on sci-fi as people know i wanted to read it first and i'm in the process of doing that um, I wanted to just to mention actually sort of a follow-up from a testimonial from an Igor uh, Kav- Kavishnikov uh, in New Jersey. I didn't mention this last time when, we, when, we, when, we, when he shared his story. Remember that he – we talked about him only a few weeks ago. Uh, he had installed an SSD in his boss's laptop that went bad. And he was really curious to find out that it went bad. Uh, the good news was that Spinrite fixed it. Um, but he said, he said, related to my testimonial, as far as I understand, SSD completely hides its internal structure, being wear leveling and optimization in firmware, and represents the drive externally as a standard mechanical drive. When Spinrite runs on level two and higher, it reads a sector and then writes it, supposedly to the same sector. But SSD is using where leveling and writes data to whatever its algorithm decides are the most appropriate cells in memory and may not be the same as where the data was read from. Is there any way to get closer to the hardware of SSD? Um, and he says an SSHD, meaning a hybrid, or will it always be a black box? Will it be addressed in the, the new version of Spinrite? Right now, according to my own and many others' users' experiences, we know that Spinrite repairs SSDs just as it does hard drives. But I think we can only speculate on how. If you've ever come across more info, on, or if you ever come across more info on internal mechanics of SSDs, please share it with us, preferably on Security Now. Then he said, shout out to my wife. She's a software security specialist and listens to every episode of Security Now. So anyway, just to quickly answer Igor's question, um, as we know, it is the case that wear leveling will cause the sector which Spinrite may have recovered to be written somewhere else. But we really don't care. Um, In fact, that's almost it's almost exactly what happens with hard drives that have spare sectors 
when the when the sector goes bad to the point that it can no longer be safely corrected, and as we know, modern hard drives allow a lot of correction before they get scared about how much correction they're having to apply and then decide they need to relocate that to somewhere else. If it happens that a sector is written to a different location, it's the recovered data after Spinrite has recovered the data from the bad spot that that the dry the SSD may itself choose not to use, but even if it thinks that the sector is still fine and rewrites it somewhere else, the the where leveling mapping logic will know where it went, so that when that same numbered sector is read again, it reads it from the right place. So the 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 badness will sort of have been opportunistically mapped out even if it wasn't deliberately mapped out. So again, where leveling helps us. And the SSD is preserving itself by making sure in general that we're writing the same amount across all of the SSD's physical surface, even if we're actually tending to write specifically numbered sectors much more often than we are others, which, as we know, uh, is the is the typical pattern of hard drive use. So Spinrite does its job and the SSD does its uh, and it all works out for the best. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah, nothing to it. Nothing to it. Uh, hey, before we get into uh, HTTP2, the new protocol from Google that's going to make life in the modern world speedier, let me talk a little bit about IT Pro TV that's going to give you the skills you need to get a better job or your first job in IT. You know, a lot of times uh, people have the skills, but they don't have, what was it that the uh, scarecrow lacked, a, or is it the Tin Woodman? It was the Tin Woodsman, a diploma. Or in this case, a cert. You want to get those certs? The best way to do it, learn and have fun doing it at IT Pro TV. Hundreds of hours of content, 30 hours every week, because they do it like we do. They do it live on the air. Um, so uh, they're always adding new content. You can get your certs in security. If you know Adam Gordon, then you'll know that he's, uh, he's the guy for this. He teaches the ISC squared cert prep courses. Microsoft, CCNA, and so forth, Cisco, CompTIA. You can learn project management. They also have Apple Mac Integration Basics, Mac Management Basics. They're adding more all the time in the Apple and the Microsoft Office sphere. If you want to take a look at their full course, let's just visit itpro.tv slash security now. They've also got the videos on YouTube, so you can see what, the, what their courses look like. They're beautifully produced. They're engaging. If you're watching live, you can chat with them just as you do with uh, us during our shows here, they offer a lot of extras, too, for your fee. And by the way, the fee is very low. Normally $57 a month, $570 for an entire year. With it, you get the uh, Measure Up Practice Exams, a $79 value, the Virtual Machine Sandbox Labs environment. So you can use uh, any browser with HTML5 support to actually set up, configure Windows servers and clients. Shows are streamed live and available on demand worldwide to your Roku, your computer, your mobile device. They support Chromecast in their player. So you can always watch on the big screen TV. And when you pay for a year at a time, you can even download episodes, DRM-free, video and MP3s for offline uh, consumption. Corporate and group pricing also available. I mean, some big companies now are using IT Pro TV. We're proud of it because we've been with them since the beginning. 
Uh, and now companies like HP, UCSD, Penn State, and Stanford, and, and many groups that support our military are using IT Pro TV to get people the skills they need to get a better job. When you go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the offer code SN30, you're going to get 30% off your subscription. And that's not just for the first month or year. That's forever. Now we're talking less than $40 a month, $399 for an entire year, so much less than a technical school or, and even in some cases less than the materials that you'd buy to study. And this is nice. Once you reach their 13th month, IT Pro TV will reduce your subscription rate even more. Your cost goes down to $24.95 a month, $249 a year. That is great. You can learn right now at itpro.tv slash security. Now, don't forget, SN30 is our offer code to save 30% off and get a seven-day trial. Absolutely free. itpro.tv. TV. We love these guys, and they've done such a great job. They've got PowerShell courses, Linux Plus courses. They're always improving it. ITPro.tv slash security now. All right, back we go to the subject at hand. In this case, HTTP2. Speedy, yes, or whatever, it's SPDY, was also from Google, right? But they're they're abandoning it now. Um. So, yes, I wanted to, for the sake of fair and balance, uh, to say that uh, I thought it was interesting that Microsoft on their pages is taking credit for HTTP2 and somehow manages never to mention Google once. Um, <laughs> Did Microsoft have anything to do with it at all? Nothing whatsoever. Oh, dear. Uh, nothing whatsoever. No. They're, they are the absolute beneficiary <laughs> of, uh, of what I think is Google – work uh, operating in the in the best of all possible ways. We know that I'm annoyed with Google when they throw their weight around as we were talking about earlier um with arbitrary deadlines on on the speed at which they would like to see the industry moving forward on various things, but Google is at their best when they are they are spinning off groups to experiment with new protocols and nowhere Ever have we seen a better example of that than with what started off as a research project, Speedy, which was not an acronym or an abbreviation. It just meant faster um, to to examine what could be done to improve HTTP. We've been with HTTP version 1.1, which is essentially HTTP 1. There were a few changes that were made. For example, technically with 1.1, you could do something called pipelining. That is, you could send other queries down the connection even though you hadn't yet received the results from the first query. But no, <laughs> there were like Excuse problems me, with making that happen, of course. But there were problems with making that happen, and it never ended up being practical. And it turned out that it wasn't of much benefit. So so for 15 years, we've been living with the same thing. So what's wrong with what we have now? I'll talk about that, uh, HTTP1. Then we'll do another break uh, for a commercial so I can <laughs> rest my voice. And then I'm going to tell you about HTTP2. So HTTP1 is it's what we've had. It's what today virtually everybody is using. Um, the problem is 
that in the last 15 years, web pages have gone crazy. They've become, you know, they've gone from a page of text that maybe had a few pictures to ridiculous uh, asset-heavy, graphics-heavy, um, script-heavy, where all kinds of stuff, the, the page's text, uh, its layout, uh, all kinds of ads and images, um, scripting coming from libraries being sourced from all over the place are all being sucked in and and pulled together to display one, you know, amazingly complex multimedia page event, essentially. So the way this happens is the browser requests the sort of the 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 raw content the the description of what the page will have in the in in what the page essentially in a resource from the server that hosts the page uh in you know html then the browser looks through all of the other assets that the page wants to have uh links to advertisers links to script, the JavaScript that it needs to run, links to Flash objects, uh, so link, link, links to plugins that it may need to load. I mean, just everything. And today's pages are just packed with all this stuff. So then the browser needs to turn around and start asking this array of other websites Lots of stuff, no doubt, from the same website, but also lots of other ones. It needs to ask all of them to start supplying all these things so that it can assemble the page. So the the problem is that the HTTP protocol is the only thing we have, the HTTP1, for doing that. So the browser opens up because it's now in a huge hurry, because pages have gone crazy, and because HTTP can, ascend, can effectively only be used for one thing at a time. That is, the protocol is a request for something, and then that something is returned, and then often the connection is dropped. Now, one of the things that we did get that is used in HTTP 1.1, thank goodness, is something called Keep Alive, where at least we don't need to create another TCP connection. We can make another HTTP request, a query, over the same TCP connection. So that's good. Otherwise, we'd be in big trouble. But even so, it's a ask for and then receive ask for the next thing and then receive ask for the next thing then receive so there was it was originally um the case that there was a two connection per server constraint placed on browsers just by convention the industry said it's impolite to open more than two connections from a browser back to a single web server because that would just overload it. It would be too many connections. Well, servers got faster so that that wasn't such a problem for them. 
And it was just a matter of demand, really. Pages got so complex that web browsers began cheating. They said, well, you know, we Firefox wants to look faster, so we're going to allow six connections to a server. And then, you know, Microsoft said, wait a minute, we're going to go for eight to, to make our pages load faster. So it was clear that the notion of of trying to ask browsers to to behave themselves and not open lots of connections back to the same server that just wasn't going very well so the so there were several problems with that the the benefit was that now you had parallel pipes back to the server and so that was good because now you could, for example, be receiving at least six things at once rather than having – and they could be done in parallel rather than needing to individually wait for each one to come back you know, over a single connection. The problem is that opening a TCP connection is not fast. That is TCP – and we've discussed the way TCP operates in detail in the past – TCP – has a problem in and this is just inherent to a packet based a packet switching network like the internet that is to say how fast should we go we know that if we go slower than we know we can then we're not utilizing the available bandwidth but if we go faster than we can at the choke point that may exist somewhere between the client and the server, if we go too fast, then buffers will overfill in routers and we'll and packets will start getting dropped. And that's bad because there's a delay in us finding out that packets have been dropped because we only know they've been dropped when they're not acknowledged by the receiver in HTCP. I'm sorry, in TCP. So... So TCP adopts sort of a, a careful exploring the bandwidth where it slowly, it's called slow start, where it slowly begins sending more and more packets and, and waiting until it senses that it's beginning, that some are being lost, and then it backs off a little bit, and then it starts creeping forward again until it has a problem, then it backs off. The point is that if we open lots of connections, they all have to independently, individually go through the same TCP slow start process in order to sense the bandwidth between the two points. And so that's not optimal. And if we're connecting to a secure server, every one of those TCP connections after establishing TCP has to then establish the, the TLS connection, go through the whole security handshake rigmarole in order to establish security. And only once that's done can they begin doing their one request at a time, HTTP version one style requests. So it's been a big mess. There's been pressure to move more things at once because pages have becoming have become huge browsers have to manage all of this at their end and that's becoming a big problem um there is this sort of this fight between how many connections how many parallel tcp connections in order to to then do tls and that puts a security burden on on, on the server for handling all the crypto and then 
all of these HTTP connections to the browser. So that's the world that we've been living in. And Google decided we must be able to do something better. One of the other problems with HTTP, and we've talked about the, the act, at the HTTP protocol, the, there, are, there are request headers that we never see. The user doesn't see them, but there are things that specify, for example, the user agent, the, you know, the name and model number of the browser that is making the request. Um, and if the browser has a cache, that is, it may have a copy of some of these things. So it's able to say, I want this, if it's, but only send it to me if it's newer than the one I have in my cache. And let me know, and in which case, um, I'll know that I still have the current thing. So there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on behind the scenes. And, we, of course, we know about cookies, too. Browsers often have lots of big, long cookies, which are relatively static for a given server. But every single request the browser makes sends these cookies back to the server as part of the request to say, um, this is the state that I currently have with the server if that changes the server's behavior relative to the browser. So there's a huge amount of redundancy in what the browser is sending to the server and no effective way to remove it. So that's the problem that we've been living with for 15 years. It's been getting worse and worse because pages have become have just gone crazy. They've exploded with complexity and it's been time to come up with a replacement, an improvement. And to their, in, to their unending credit, Google has done it, and they have done a beautiful job. We're going to talk about that next. Oh, how exciting. But before we do, <laughs> thank you for the nice break there. I want to talk about pager duty. Are you on pager duty right now? You know what that means. I want to help you decrease the noise of your pager for your IT professionals, pagerduty.com slash twit. You probably heard about them. You know about them, pagerduty.com slash twit. Anybody who's leashed, I guess it's not just pagers anymore. You get text messages and so forth. If you if you are um, involved in this, you want to make sure your operations uh, are always delivering, then you need to know about pagerduty at pagerduty.com slash twit. PagerDuty is an operations performance platform that delivers visibility and actionable intelligence to help increase the uptime of your apps, your servers, your websites, your databases. It just makes it better to be on PagerDuty. As the hub of your operations, PagerDuty collects all your systems into a single view. You've got a dashboard where you can see critical events across all your monitoring tools. And I mean everything. Nagios, New Relic, Keynote, App Dynamics. There's over 100 ready-to-use integrations. And, of course, PagerDuty has a full API, so you can roll your own. Now, as you, because you know what's going on, you'll reduce your resolution time. Because when an incident occurs, PagerDuty notifies the right team and member based upon on-call schedules and personalized alerting preferences. If a, an alert is missed or ignored, PagerDuty automatically escalates to another team member until it's responded to. Of course, alerts are not just on pagers. Automated phone calls, SMS, email, push notifications. You can resolve incidents on the go so you can live your life even while you're on call. Decrease the noise. Incidents are automatically filtered and deduped to ensure only actionable alerts are delivered. 
PagerDuty's analytic tools will also identify common problems so you could proactively make sister, uh, system improvements to prevent future pagers. <laughs> PagerDuty, it's relentless when it comes to reliability fully distributed across multiple data centers and multiple hosting providers. There are multiple contact method providers per method. You, will, you won't miss an alert. And probably the person who's going to be buying this is not going to be somebody who's going to be on the pager. So be, think, be kind to your IT professional, your support folks. Be kind. You can customize it to fit how you and your team work, regardless of location or size. People who use PagerDuty include Microsoft, GitHub, Boeing, Nike, Pinterest, Box. I want to get the PagerDuty uh, T-shirt. It says, don't hate the pager, hate the game. <laughs> get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. PagerDuty.com slash twits. Sign up for a free 14-day trial. It's as little as $19 a month to increase your uptime with PagerDuty. And when you sign up for a new account, you get the T-shirt. More importantly, you get the T-shirt. PagerDuty.com slash twit. Try it free. I'm telling you, if you don't already use PagerDuty, you need it. You want it. Get it now. PagerDuty. P-A-G-E-R-D-U-T-Y dot com. Slash twit. We continue on with our discussion of HTTPS2 or whatever it is. It's not S, is it? <laughs> well, Can it not actually, be S? That's a very good point. I was going to bring that up, but that's a perfect segue. The definition for, for HTTP version 2 does allow it to operate non-securely, that is, without a TLS tunnel. Although it's in the spec, nobody currently does that. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether servers that offer uh, full HTTP slash two um, sort of like when they finally make the migration from Speedy. Right now, everybody technically is still running Speedy. Um, for example, the draft that I read last night in order to bring myself completely up to the minute on what Slash 2 is doing was draft 17, which is the latest one, and it is dated February 11th, 2015, meaning six wow. days ago. Wow. Yeah. So they're, they are, they're at the point of crossing their T's and dotting their I's. So it's not like there are any big changes remaining. Um, and there are, is already support for HTTP2 um, among, I think, uh, there, there, I know that there's an, an Apache mod. Nginx supports it. Uh, Microsoft has announced, even though they don't talk about where it came from, they do announce... <laughs> That somehow it will be appearing in Windows 10 server, so and it is it is right now in the Windows 10 preview is HTTP slash two per the current spec, and all the browsers support it. Um, as we mentioned last week, Chrome will be dropping support for Speedy next year, and you know like given like they'll they'll they'll, they'll be like a year overlap. Um, and I think it was with Chrome 40 we talked about last last week. Uh, Chrome will be formally supporting HTTP2, um, which of, of anyone in the world, the Chromium people had the smallest changes to make in their browser because they already had Speedy. Of course, Firefox supports it. Safari, Safari supports it. You know, it's essentially ready 
So I think we're going to see it happen soon. The reason is it really works. This is not, you know, one of the, the things we've talked about is why is it that, that so many better things take so long to get adopted or never really get off the ground? It's because there is adoption inertia. There, if, if you've got something that is, well, this works well enough, then there's just no impetus to change. It's, it's the reason, for example, that I have believed that Squirrel has a, a chance because usernames and passwords just don't work well enough. I mean, they're, they're really broken. But if something's not really broken, it's like, eh, you know, and as it is, it took 15 years to fix HTTP version one. And while you couldn't really say it's really broken, look what I've just described as what the industry has had to go through in order to like keep ahead of the fact that the protocol really was no longer up to the game that it was being asked to play. So Speedy, which is for all intents and purposes, HTTP slash two is what you get when when an independent team who really understands the way the internet and the web work can say, we're going to not do 1.2, but we're going to do 2.0. And by the way, it's not 0.0, it's just slash 2. Um, and there was some, some it was, that was the case deliberately. They didn't want... Uh, to to create some notion of you know subversions and things. This is a complete break from what we have had. There is no backward compatibility between two and one point one or anything before it. Zero. This is we're going to start over and do it right. Do it well. And, and and you could argue one version one was right for the times. Version two is right for today. So in the first thing that they do is one connection, period. Now, at first you think, wait a minute, uh, wouldn't two be faster? And if you think, stop and think about it for a second, no. Because two is going to have to move over the same bandwidth. If you've got two connections to something r- remote, they're still going to have to come over the same channel. So why not run one connection twice as fast than two connections half as fast? So one connection. And and the other reasons we want only one connection is, as I was saying, all the other problems associated with multiple parallel connections. TCP, you don't want to have to ramp it up and have six of them or even two of them independently figuring out how fast they can go because they're both going too slowly. Instead, have one connection and and have it figure out how fast it can go and it'll be going as fast as it can. So that makes more sense. One TLS security negotiation. One, rather than even two, just one. And the, uh, the other thing is that the if you think about it, the existing HTTP protocol is a hierarchy of standards. You've got, and, and as we know, the whole layered networking model, we'll skip some of the lower layers because the ones we're concerned with are you first make a TCP connection, then maybe you bring up a secure tunnel 
on top of the TCP connection. And then inside that tunnel, you put HTTP requests. The problem is that you, we, we still have to make a TCP connection. We still have to bring up a secure tunnel. But what if there was some way of signaling that what we were going to be doing with the secure tunnel was HTTP2? And again, the Google guys did not miss a trick. They've added a pseudo cipher suite to the TLS version 1.2 spec, which is the one we're at now that has wide adoption, uh, even GRC supports it. So you know it. <laughs> you know it's been around for a while. The pseudo cipher suite is a clue to tell the server during the security negotiation, we're going to be doing HTTP2 over this connection. So they short-circuit another round of sort of protocol negotiation delay. And the server then is able in that negotiation to acknowledge it's able to do HTTP2. Let's go. And because this is a fundamentally asynchronous protocol, uh, and I'll explain what that means a little bit later, but the, but the server has something called speculative push, which is sort of the equivalent of speculative processing. The, the very latest CPUs, um, when, when, when they're uh, executing instructions and come to a branch, if, the, if they're so far ahead by doing what they can of, for example, of the instructions being finished, which will determine which branch to take, these CPUs take both branches. It's not the road less traveled. It's, well, just travel both roads. And so that's called speculative execution. The, the chip will take both branches, start executing instructions down both, and then once the results from a previous instruction are known, it discards the branch that turned out not to be taken in that case. So this is a little bit different. This is speculative push where... Nothing prevents a server from sending, like sending ahead some things that, for whatever reason, it knows the the browser is ultimately going to get around to asking for. So this is just really cool. Um, so we have one connection ever. There's no reason, no benefit conceivable beyond that. And so that we only have one connection between the client and the server. And we short circuit the argument or the questioning about whether each end supports HTTP2 by tucking that information into hints in the, in, in the security negotiation. So that's all resolved um, immediately. The next thing we do is agree that we're going to divide this single connection into frames. So frames is an abstraction that, that HTTP2 lays on top of its single connection. And what that does is it allows it to support simultaneous multiple streams. You have um, a a um a nine byte <clears throat> excuse me nine byte 
frame header. Now remember, this is this this is distinct from packets. TCP, the underlying communications protocol, that's chopping things into packets in order to move them around. And TCP guarantees that lost packets will get replaced and that out-of-order packets will get reorg reorganized in the proper flow um, by the time they need to get used. So what HTTP2 can rely on is that its communications is just seen as a, as a single stream. That is, what it sends is what either end sends comes out of the other end eventually in the same and proper order. So what it does is it divides the TCP stream into arbitrary length uh, frames, so frames on top of the TCP stream, and the, there, there's a header that is nine bytes on the top of the frame. So, so there's a little bit of a per frame overhead of nine bytes, meaning that you wouldn't want to have lots of itty bitty frames because then the, the payload of the frame starts getting large relative to the per frame header. On the other hand, you don't want to have really monstrous frames. Otherwise, Whatever is in that frame is dominating the stream. So the point is you get a, a benefit from chopping what would normally be a single stream connection into multiple virtual connections using this frame abstraction. So the, 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 you have this 9-byte header. The first 24 bits of it, so 3 bytes... Um, is the is the frame's length, the frame's payload length, meaning except for the header, you ignore the header, the, the, the length of the payload that the frame is carrying. And you only ever use 14 of those 24 bits without permission to, from the other end to use more. So they've, they've given themselves plenty of growing space, up to 16 megabytes is 24 bits, but normally they only use 16 K, bits, K bytes, which is 14 bits, as a maximum size of a frame, and most frames are probably going to be a lot smaller than that. Then there's an 8-bit, that is one byte frame type, so that gives you up to 256 possible frame types, of which right now they use only a handful. Um, then you've got a one-byte set of flags, which are frame type specific. So different frame types may or may not need some flag bits, and if so, this gives them to them. And then finally, a 32-bit stream ID. That is to say, what... Of many streams, is this frame the next one of? And for whatever reason, the high bit of that is always zero, must be zero on when being sent, and must be ignored when received. So technically, it's a 31-bit stream ID in a 32-bit space. So that's the nine bytes. But basically, that means we've got frames that can range from very small to up to 16K, unless we receive permission from the other end to use 
even bigger frames. Um, and, and then some, you know, a, basically a frame type, some flags for that frame if it needs them. But then the cool thing is a 32-bit stream ID. The, so the 32-bit stream ID, and that's, you know, four gigs a possible stream. So that's just, you know, it's big because not that we need that many, but we don't want to run out of them. What that says is that, as I said, this frame is the next one of that stream. And, and the, this, the, the simultaneous multiple streams allows essentially a multiplex conversation between the two endpoints. That is, it allows requests, it allows, for example, the browser to, to just, ar- at its whim, to arbitrarily create new streams by successively numbering stream IDs and to stick uh, requests for web resources, you know, uh, scripts and, and assets and so forth from that same server. That is, remember, one connection is between one client and one remote server. You might have other speedy, or I should say HTTP, two connections, one each to other servers that are also contributing content to this page only one to that one server. So the browser just s- sits there emitting queries for assets, giving them successively numbered stream IDs over the same connection. Those all then begin arriving at the server. It starts finding them and sending the, sending the, the, the response uh, over an, an otherwise similar HTTP protocol back to the server. Now, that's worth mentioning. The actual content of these, of these streams is HTTP protocol. That is the familiar one, the text-based protocol with request headers and so forth. So the nice thing is that... We haven't redefined the HTTP protocol on the wire, well, well, well um, that goes into the wire. What we've done is we, you, you, we've sort of created, you can think of it as a shim. That is, you could have something on the other side that is still just, in, just generating standard traditional HTTP queries. Once upon a time, that would have had to wait for for essentially available connection space or a, a free connection in order to put the query on the wire. Now, that standard HTTP query, thanks to HTTP2, which manages how we handle wires, it's able to send them all out as, as fast as it's able to generate them, give them individual stream IDs and shoot them out there. But my point was the the format of the the query data the the query itself that stayed the same now the server then is sending all this stuff back the other thing that the client can do is give streams priorities and interdependencies it's able to say I want this stream at high priority for example the 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 main the base 
the, the base page's main HTML, which the browser needs in or, to have back immediately in order to have all the other URLs that it needs to request, it's going to say, get that back to me, absolute top priority. Don't slow that down on, you know, on behalf of other assets that I may also be asking for or may start asking for even before I've got the whole main base page back. So it's able to say that all the other assets are dependent upon this first stream or it's able to say they're lower priority. So there's a sort of a, a, a an interlocking semantics that allows priorities and dependencies to be resolved by the by the by whichever end is doing the sending. Now, so so what we've got is one connection optimized for speed. It comes up, we get going immediately. Um, and and the the client is able to just to start sending requests down, packetizing them in individual frames, giving them unique streams. They come out at the server end. The server starts. It, it it looks at the dependencies and the priorities, and that allows it as it's accumulating this increasing block of stuff it wants to send back. It allows it to send them back with the priority and dependency that the, that, the, that the client has requested. And essentially, for there never to be a dull moment, notice that it's, it's accumulating a big blob of stuff. And it's going to be squirting it through the connection as fast as it can, given the constraints that the, that the client has, has, has put upon it. So it's going to keep this one connection absolutely maximally busy there will not be pauses in between assets being requested and and sent back so so we get absolute much better utilization of that one connection even if we had six connections as or or more as we at one point would have because each one of those six would have still been an ask and get, ask and get, ask and get. And the server would have been sitting here like essentially waiting for the things it sent to get there so that it could receive another request over one of those connections for the next thing that the client knew that it wanted. So this completely transforms the nature of the way data is able to move from the server to the client. Now, the other cool thing that I just... When I, I didn't ever pay attention to this before, but I had to um, in order to understand how header compression was being done. Because as I mentioned, there's a huge amount of redundancy in the way headers are handled. The client is almost always emitting the same header contents. And that's hugely redundant when you're asking for a whole bunch of things from the same server, they're coming from the same user agent. They're going to be carrying the same cookies. It's going to be the same time of day. You know, there's there's all these things that are that are not changing yet. As I said, the HTTP textual protocol is still carried unmodified, which is very clever. Okay. To understand header compression, we need to know a little bit about the way compression works. That is, the, the, these two geniuses, Lempel and Ziv, came, and that's where the initials LZ came from. 
back in the 70s, I think it was 77, uh, acquired a patent on a concept they had, uh, which became named Lempel-Ziv compression, LZ compression. Um, And that's where zip came from. The Z is zip and G-zip and LZW and LZA and so forth. All of these are, are descendants of this original concept. And the concept is as follows. You are, you are sending something to the other side that the other side knows nothing about, has no knowledge of it. And in fact, you don't either. You are, this is so-called, this is called stream compression because the idea is that you are receiving bytes in a stream knowing nothing about it in advance. So what you do is you, as you receive bytes of data, you, if you can do nothing more, and we'll tell, I'll explain what that means in a second, you just send the byte on. But you also keep a buffer of the most recent X number of bytes you have sent. That is, you send them on and you put them into a buffer that you maintain of what you've just sent. And as you receive them, you you look upstream a little bit to see what's coming and you look for matching patterns in what you've already sent. And the, the, the genius of what these guys came up with was the idea that if you were getting ready to send something that you had not that long ago sent, even, even a piece, even three or four characters or five or six, you could instead send a reference to that string that you have in your buffer to the other side. The other side is doing the same thing you're doing. As it's receiving characters from you, it's maintaining a buffer separate from storing these characters in, in the destination file. It's maintaining a buffer. So that it, And it turns out that this, this was the cool part. These two buffers are synchronized. You're maintaining a buffer of what you've sent. It's maintaining a buffer of what it's received, which is what you've sent. So when you send it a reference to the buffer, to, to a, a, a substring that appears in your buffer, that's a reference to the same substring in its buffer. The point is you've only had to send a reference, not the actual substring. You got compression. So that's the way compression works. All of this LZ compression is based on that. The idea of, of synchronized buffers, which both ends are able to maintain, never having to actually share the buffer, but evolving it on the fly. So the that set of buffers is known as the compression context. That is, it's the context that each end maintains, one while compressing the other to decompress what the other has compressed in a communications channel. And the same thing happens if you like store a file on a hard drive and so forth. If all of these connections were being made separately, then and if you even had GZIP, for example, dynamically com- doing communication stream compression on the connections they would all have separate contexts. The genius of 
what the Google guys did is to use one compression context per connection, not per stream, per connection. And what that means is you instantly get cross-query compression. That is, an HTTP query goes out in the first stream and is compressed. It won't compress much because we haven't seen those request headers before. But the second query goes from the same browser to the same server with the same cookies, the same user agent, all the same redundant headers. It goes out over the same connection using the same compression context as the connections, which is the same compression context that just got through compressing the headers for the first stream. And all it is is pointers into that context. It gets the most perfect compression you could get for free. And the same thing happens at the other end. So the beauty is you're not redefining the HTTP textual protocol where it's got headers and cookies and user agents and all that. All that stays. But the beauty is essentially you send it once. And then the then all you're ever sending again is very short pointers into the compression context that was established by the first query that went. You could still change things if you wanted. You'll, you'll get slightly less compression, but you'll be getting the, as much compression as you possibly could because you have one compression context for all the simultaneous multiplexed streams. And if just because I didn't say it yet to make sure it's clear, when the server is sending a whole bunch of things back, it's able to interleave these if it wants to. It's able to send chunks of different stuff, each with their own stream ID. They are received at the other end, and they're, they're demultiplexed back into the original assets that requested by stream ID, and the client knows what to ask for. So, it's, so that is it. That is HTTP2. It, it's worth noting also... A couple things. First of all, that the speculative push is, is, is fun because it means that the server can anticipate what the client might ask for. Right now, that's not in, in HTTP 1. That's, there's not, it's not possible. First of all, there's no way for the server to send anything that hasn't been requested. But notice that that's always been something lacking. That is, the server is sending a page whose contents it it has. It has to wait for it to go to the other end for the client to get it, then for the client to read it, and the client to request the things that the server already knew was on the page that it was sending to the client. So the server really does have more early knowledge of what's on the page than the client has. Now, caching in the client prevents it from having to ask for things a lot more. So the server just want, wouldn't want to send everything on the page because the client may very well have a lot of that stuff already cached and know that it hasn't expired or just ask if it's going to, if it has expired, depending upon how long that object said 
it would be good for. So you can't, you don't want to overuse speculative push. But for example, if there, if there was a, a period of time where the connection wasn't in use and the server believed it knew other things that the client might want, it could use that time in order to send them. It's worth mentioning that while we've got this great protocol, this does put a substantial obligation on the client and the server to make maximum use of it. That is, yes, now we can ask for things all at once. Um, we can say, we can like try to figure out what the optimal priority and interdependence is, but that's not for free. That requires a, a kind of logic that the clients and servers haven't needed to, to have built into them yet. So it may well be that what we're going to see over time is an improvement in the performance of HTTP2 as each end gets better and more clever at using to its maximum capacity and capability the features, the rich feature set that HTTP2, for the first time ever, makes available to each end. And that's what it is. And full credit to Google for this. This is a beautiful piece of work. I suspect that a lot of this uh, is in response to the capabilities of modern servers, in particular servers running Node and other Ajaxy solutions, where they really would love to be able to do this. You know, Google basically created Ajax 10 years ago with Google Maps and, and Gmail. The idea that it would pre... that stuff would load in the background so that when you slid a map around, those tiles right. would already be there. And, uh, but, but, of course, modern server technology of the time didn't really support it very well. And I think a lot of this is really in response to what servers can do and what sites using Ajax technologies have wanted to do. And uh, that, now that, it's in the yeah, server, that, right? That's certainly part client, of it. Mostly, yeah. m m mostly, it's just this connection burden. Now we have, yeah, we can, that, yeah. yeah, we can, we can multiplex now much more data over a single connection. And we already saw. Remember that HTTP, HTTP versus HTTPS website, where a side by side, you run Speedy right. with encryption compared to HTTP without. And is it any surprise now that we know what this does? Is it it's a any lot surprise? Yeah. This just blows it off, yeah. blows its yeah. socks off. Yeah. 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 That was a fun uh, thing. We did that the uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yep. Steve Gibson does it again, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've been listening and I hope you learned something. <laughs> we do security now every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, that would be 2100 UTC. Uh, you are certainly invited to listen live. I think it's a lot of fun to listen live. Especially if you're in the chat room and you can chat along behind the scenes and help each other <laughs> understand what's going on. Uh, but if you can't, hey, don't worry. we got on-demand versions available for you. Steve hosts a 16-kilobit audio file, MP3 file. that's pretty light, uh, pretty small for the bandwidth impaired. He also has transcripts, which are excellent if you like to read along. Or if you want to search, that's the real value of it. You can search the, uh, the topic yep. and find the part you want. Uh, all of that's at grc.com. That's where you should go if you have questions, because I think technology uh, news uh, permitting, we're going to have a, a question and answer session next week. Q&A so, is on the schedule for next so week. Best way to ask questions, don't email Steve, grc.com slash feedback for the feedback form. Or if you could do it in 140 characters, tweet at SGGRC. He follows the Twitter. Um, you can also, when you get there, get Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. 
You can also get a lot of other freebies. This things Steve gives away. They're awfully good. GRC.com. Our website for this show is twit, TWIT.tv slash SN for security now. That's where we put the high quality audio and the video files of the show, show notes to uh, other things. Um, and all of the other shows we do on the Twit Network. You can also go to youtube.com slash security now. We have a copy there for sh- suitable for sharing with others. Uh, and, of course, wherever you get your podcasts because we're on everywhere. Being has, we've done nearly 500 episodes. <laughs> By now they figured out we exist. Don't forget to vote for Steve at the Podcast Awards. You didn't mention it. Oh, I didn't. Thank you, Leo. Podcastawards.com, is that right? Did you get nominated? We don't know yet. Don't know. Okay. So right now you're voting to get him nominated, and then I'll expect you to vote to make him the winner. Please. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) Steve Steve cares about these things, so we want to support him. I do. Make me happy. Make him happy. He deserves to be happy. Uh, We'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Talk to you then. Security.